Welcome to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Well, let's uh, open our Bibles to Luke chapter 15. So this morning, I just want to share one of my life messages, one, one, one of the passages that has really shifted and changed the way I approach uh, God. And that's Luke chapter 15, verse 11 to 31. Verse, verse 11 to 31. It's a long passage. Uh, I am tempted to invite one of you to come and read this, uh, but I shall spare you. All right, so let's just uh, read God's Word together. I've got no PowerPoint. This is old school uh, Daniel Chua style, all right? So no PowerPoint today. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pots that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on, on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Now, the calf is a very important character in this story, all right? Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he, when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has, he has him back safe and sound. Now the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when that son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you're always with him and everything I have is yours. But we have to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and, and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Now, all of us are defined by the encounters we have and oftentimes by the people we meet and the books we read. Now, I want to say that this message uh, was inspired by one of the books that have shaped my life. In fact, a few books, but one of them is by Tim Keller called The Prodigal God. It's a very powerful book. I would strongly encourage you to read that. It shifted uh, 
uh, together with the encounter, which I'll share uh, my perspective of who God is and what the church is supposed to be like. All right, and this parable that we just read is famous. And for centuries has been called the parable of the prodigal son. Now, it is a big mistake to think that this story is only about one son because it is the story, as we have read, of two sons. It is the story of the younger brother and the older brother. We have to compare and contrast them. If we don't compare and contrast the older brother and younger brother, we would miss the radical message of this parable. And you have to understand, this is a very radical parable. In fact, I would say this is the most radical parable that Jesus gave. Jesus says that all human thoughts about how to connect with God, whether in the East or the West, whether ancient, modern or postmodern, in every religion, in every secular thought, based on this parable, Jesus is saying to us it is completely wrong. And this parable basically destroys all existing categories. The historians once said that Christianity, when it first appeared in the world, is not called a religion. In fact, no one called Christianity a religion back in those days. It was not seen as a religion. It was actually called an anti or anti-religion. The Romans called Christians atheists 2,000 years or 200 years ago. And the reason for that is that the Romans understood, what the Romans understood was Christianity says about God is so different from any other religion that it should not be given the same name. It is in an, in, an in entirely different category. And, when, and they were right because this parable basically debunked all definition of what religion tells us. So now just let me quickly run us through this story, uh, give you some background, some context, and uh, make a few comments and we will land the plane. All right. So this story has two acts as we have read. Act 1 is about the younger brother and Act 2 is about the... Elder brother. And the first act begins with a speech. The younger brother comes to his father and says, Father, give me my share of the inheritance. And the audience at this point, when they hear it, are absolutely shocked and amazed. You see, if you have two sons, upon your death, the estate will be divided two-thirds to the eldest and one-third to the youngest because the eldest son will receive a double portion. That's the rule of thumb. But this only happened at the father's death. So if the son had come and asked for his father's inheritance now, the audience, especially the Eastern audience, when they heard it, would be astonished and dumbfounded. Because to ask for the inheritance when the father is still alive is actually to say, I want you dead. And the younger son is actually saying the following. He's saying, I want your things, but I don't need you. I want my father's things, but I don't need my father. And my relationship with you is just a means to an end, and I'm tired of it. I want my things right now. And that's exactly what the younger son is saying. I'm tired of living in this house. I'm tired of, of, of working with you. I'm tired of you being my father. Give me my inheritance now. Let me live my own life. And that's exactly what the son said. This is unheard of. When, Je when Jesus' audience, both the Pharisees, the sinners, when they were hearing that, they were shocked. But what is even more unheard of is the second half of the verse. Because if the hearers were stuck by this speech, they would be utterly shocked by what the father did. Because the eastern father would disown the son and said, I have nothing to do with you, no inheritance, you are disowned, leave the house. But what the father did 
instead of physically, verbally, forcefully abusing the child, the father actually divided the property between them. And this is what the Bible says. He divided the property between them. Now, the word property in Greek is actually the word bio, which we get the word biology. So what the Bible actually says in Greek is that the father divided his life between them. So why did he say that? Now, we have to understand the people of the past, because those days it was, it was an agrarian culture, which means that uh, the father's estate was his land. His wealth was his land. He would have to sell a third of his land to give his son his share. And the father's identity, because how powerful you were back in those days, was tied to how much land you have. And so to lose his land was to lose himself. And to lose some of his land was to lose his position in society. And this son is asking his father to destroy his life, to destroy his position in society, and the father did that. Now, the listener have never seen a Middle Eastern patriarch respond to such an insult in this way. The father is experiencing the worst thing a man can ever experience, and that is rejected love. And from the story, we know that the father loved his son. But he's experiencing rejected love. And when someone treats us in this way, what do we do? We usually get angry, get upset, we retaliate, we push back, we reject, and we reduce our attachment with that person. Most of us would do that. Even me, as an imperfect dad, you know, when my kids disobey or when my kids rebel or when my kids push their boundaries, I will retaliate. But this father was completely different. This father maintains his love for his son even in such a circumstance and endures the anguish of rejected love. So the son sets off, as we read, he squanders everything he has, and when he's literally lying in the mud among the pigs in the pig pen and realizes how stupid he has been, he came up with a plan. Now, this son is a planner. He planned to take his father's estate, and now in, in his worst state, he was planning how to get back to his previous place to go home. And so his plan is this. First, I'll go home. I'll confess to my father and then there's a part to, to his plan. He says, I'll say to my father, I've sinned. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired men. Now, you have to understand that this is different from asking the father to make him a slave. A slave and servant works and lives in the estate. But a hired man is actually a craftsman. He's an artisan. He lives in the town, in the city, and he works as an apprentice to learn the craft and therefore get a wage. So what the young man was doing was very simple. The rabbis thought that when someone has broken the norms of the community, one should not just apologize, but one should actually make amends. And so the younger son was probably planning to pay back what he took from his father and work his way back into the family. That's his, that's his plan. I'll pay you back, father. Take me back, but not as your son, as a craftsman. I'll pay my way back, I'll pay you back. I, I've realized how terrible I was. I was a foolish person. I'll pay you back. So he makes his way back. And the Bible tells us when the father saw him in a distance, he ran. Now, if you've heard this sermon preached before, you would know that Middle Eastern fathers do not run. Right? Children run, young men run, women run, but fathers don't run. Estate owners, wealthy people in those days, they don't run. Because when you run, you have to pick up your ropes, you have to expose your legs, 
and you don't do these things. You are respectable, you have wealth, and you don't run. You walk with pomp and some ceremony. So many commentators actually said that this father is not behaving like a father. This father was behaving like a mother. And so he ran to his son. He shows absolute emotional abandonment, kisses him. And the son tries to outline his plan. He said, bring me the PowerPoint. Let me share with you my plan to pay you back. But he didn't get the chance to do that. The father didn't want to listen to anything. He told his servants, get the best clothes. Bring out my robes. Clothe him. He's saying, I don't even have to wait for you to clean up or to wash up. I'm not going to wait for you to take a shower. I'm not going to wait for you to prove yourself. He says, I'll clothe you. Put the ring, the sandals. I'll cover my son's nakedness. Rags with ropes from my office and honor you and give you a feast. You don't deserve to go back to your family, but I'll bring you back. That's what the father said. So that's act one, right? Then starts act two, when the older brother who was working in the field, in the harvest, adding to the father's estate, at this point in time, the wealth is all his because the younger brother has basically took his share of the inheritance, right? When he found out, he came back, he became furious. As you you can see, he was upset about the cost. The main thing here, three times in the passage we read, is about the fattened calf. What's the big deal? You gave him a calf. Because people in the Middle East back in those days hardly ever ate meat. It was a delicacy. When you eat meat, it was a feast. But the greatest delicacy and the most expensive was to slaughter a fatted calf. Filet mignon, the different parts, T-bone, whatever. You know, those days, to eat steak was a big deal. And the whole village was there, not just a part of the calf, the whole calf. And the elder brother says, how dare you use our wealth in this way? I've obeyed you. I've slaved for you. That's what the Bible says. In other words, I've some rights over your things. How dare you do that? And he insults his father. If you notice, read verse 29. He didn't even call his father dad. He says, look, you. In other words, in our modern-day vernacular, is, oi! Oi! He publicly humiliated his father by not going to the greatest feast his father has ever given. He forces his father to come out. And notice, the father came out and he publicly humiliated the father by refusing to call him dad. Again, what did the father do? In any Middle Eastern family, the father would have, again, be furious, be reprimanding uh, this older brother. But yet, he responded with a gentle word. He says, my son. It can actually be translated as my child. In Malay, sayang. I still want you in the feast. See, almost every father would have been infuriated, but... This father was different. This father said, I want you in the feast. I want you to celebrate because my younger son was once lost, but now he's found. And so he told this amazing story, two acts, and then there was a cliffhanger when the sinners and the, and the tax collectors were wondering what happened next. Jesus concluded the parable. They were on the edge. Ask the question, will this broken family ever be united? But Jesus did not give the answer. How would the older brother react to the plea of the father? Jesus didn't say. He was silent. 
So the question is, what is Jesus trying to tell us in this parable? I believe in this story, as I said, it's a radical. And in this parable, Jesus redefined three things. Number one, Jesus redefined God. Number two, Jesus redefined sin. And number three, Jesus redefined salvation. He redefined God, he redefined sin, and he redefined salvation. First of all, he redefined God. There are many people who find it difficult to understand that God is Father. Jesus, more than anyone else in history, referred to God as Father, as Abba. He was the first man ever to address God as Father. And every time he refers to God in the Bible, he calls Him Father except once. This view of God as Father is very rare in the Old Testament. In this story, he, Jesus defined what it means by the word Father because people have this notion that the Father is rigid, the Father is harsh, the Father, the father is judgmental, the Father is bossy, the Father is controlling. But Jesus gave us a Father unlike any Father of His day. Read the story. The Father's emotional abandonment, the Father's generosity, the Father's willingness to accept the anguish of rejected love, the father leaving the house, pleading with both sons, the father waiting, the father running. And this, is what the, and this is what Jesus was saying. I know that many of you have fathers that are different from this father, but my father is not like that. You, you, you see many Christians, our experience with our earthly dad kind of frame who God the father is. Some of us grew up with absent dad who wasn't there in our uh, home. And so we thought that God is always absent. We thought that oh, we love Jesus, we love the Holy Spirit, but the Father will always be arm's length. Some of us have abused that, and so we thought that the Father is, is this abusive judge waiting to judge us when we make a mistake. And so Jesus came to redefine who God is, that our God is a good Father. Amen? See, religion has made this story about the failure and the sins of the Son. Just as religion focuses on the actions of the sinner rather than what God has done to restore the relationship between Himself and His children. Religion focuses on the sinfulness of the world. But those of us who are Christians, we know that for God so loved the world, He gave His only Son. Jesus redefined God. See, this parable speaks more of the Father's love and the desire for intimacy than the Son's rebellion. And that's why Tim Keller calls uh, his book The Prodigal God because the word prodigal means one who spends or gives lavishly, recklessly extravagant. So although the son squandered his inheritance wastefully, how much more recklessly did his father give honour, compassion, forgiveness and mercy when his son least deserved it? The father was reckless. The father was prodigal. The father basically said, kill the calf. Give me the rope. Give him the, the ring. When the son did not deserve it. He was the prodigal, reckless, extravagant dad. So that was my encounter. See, when I was growing up, you know, I've, I've always preached. I've preached before the fatherhood of God, the fatherhood of God. And it's from... It's, it's from at intellectual level, I know God is there, I, and, I'll, and, and I'll speak to my youth, and I'll say, God is a good father, la la la, but I've never really experienced God. All right, it is one thing to know it, it's another thing to experience it. So I've experienced Jesus as my Savior, I've got no doubt I'm safe, man, I'm safe. You can tell me you're not safe, I said, 
you know, this is what you think I'm safe. I am I'm 110% safe. Today, if I die, I'll go to heaven in spite of my sins because I encountered Jesus. He became my Savior. He became my Lord. No matter what people said, I'm secure in my destiny and my destination regardless of my performance. I know it. I experienced the Holy Spirit more times than a lot of people. I was, you know, this, this may sound crazy for some of you, but you know, I, 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 I was, I didn't ask for it. I was baptized in the Holy Spirit. I spoke in tongues. I wrote on the floor. Now, I wasn't this crazy guy chasing after all these things. God encountered me. He ambushed me. All right. So again, you can have all the right theology in the scripture. My experience, God encountered me. There was no fear. There was no demons. I was on the floor and I felt free. If I died at that moment, again, I said, God, this is the greatest experience I've ever had. No one can steal that experience from me. But I've never encountered God as father. Never. I know it in the head. Until one day in 50 McPherson Road, it was years ago, our church was very, very new then, and uh, we, had, we had a speaker from New Zealand, and some people think he was a boring speaker. And, you know, I agree, disagree, uh, because he's not the most animated, you know, uh, speaker, he was a little, a little bit monotonous, but for some reason, I resonated with what he was talking about. He was talking about uh, God the Father pouring out His Spirit, and that's not just adoption, but we actually become real sons like Jesus. And so, that impacted me. He gave the call, I was in the front, took the stage, I was crying, he came over, gave me a hug. At that moment, I experienced God as my dad. I didn't just know it here. I experienced it. I was caught up into the heavens. I saw myself uh, in the Father's arms. I looked like a, a, a three years old with my face, but looked like a three years old. And I felt, this guy is so cute, but I felt so secure. I felt safe. You know, uh, all my desire to perform, all my desire to prove myself just slipped out of me. And I felt so secure in the Father's embrace. And I knew that the Father loved me. And He's not a judge, even though He judged sin. He's not just my commander-in-chief, even though I'm part of His army. He's not just my king, even though, you know, I belong to His kingdom. He's my dad. And I felt so secure. I was tearing, but I was encountering him as my dad. And everything changed. Everything changed. I realized, not just here, but in experience then, 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 the greatest revelation of God is Father. And I understood what, what the gospel was. The Father lost his sons in the garden. Jesus came and and found me and brought me home to my dad. And then I realized what the church is. The church is not just an organization, even though we organize ourselves. The church is not just an army, even though there are battles to fight. The church, first and foremost, is a family. Because if the greatest revelation of God is Father, then the truest and the best expression of the church is family. I'm serving you not because I have to, I want to. Because in the family, we serve. And that's why I look forward to this series because this is what a family looks like. You know, the pastor doesn't have to beg you, please volunteer, please. We serve one another in love because we are all about our father's business. I'm tired from a whole week of serving, but I know I've got to do this because Jenny said, Daniel, can you speak? And I've been saying no, no for many weeks. 
Last night, yesterday, I was doing MFL class. I was so tired, but I wanted to do that because it's me serving my brothers and sisters. To me, it is not work. It's not duty. To me, it is a sense of I want to pour my life out because I'm about my father's business, and I, but I know how to enjoy myself. I'm living today, you know, taking joy for a holiday, for a quick break. See, this is what serving God to me from that encounter feels like, look like, and sound like. I love it. But God, Jesus redefined the Father. But He also redefined sin. See, the, the brilliance of Jesus' rhetoric here is that in the first act, Jesus presented the traditional picture of sin. We all know what sin is. Anyone who heard the story looked at the younger brother and said, that's sin. Insulting the father, self-indulgence, prostitutes, pig pen, disorder, the mess, the brokenness, the smell, the stench. That's sin. They say, of course, Jesus is talking about the sinners. Absolutely. But in the second act, he turned the situation around. And when you get to the end of the, of the second act, this is what you have left with. There are two sons. One very good. One very, very bad. And they are both estranged from the father's heart. Each of them wanted to get his father's things, but not his father. You notice that? Each of them used the father to get the things he really loves. They didn't love their father. They used their father to get what they really love, which is status, which is wealth, which is experiences, pleasures. But one of them did this by being very good. The other did it by being very bad. <laughs> they are both lost. The bad one is lost in his badness and the good one is lost in his goodness. And in the end, the irony, the paradox is the bad son is saved. And the good son, as far as we know, Jesus, cliff, hanger, remain lost outside the house. And this is the contrary to what everyone believed. The lover of prostitutes is safe. And the man of high moral character who didn't even sin, there was no list, is lost and it gets worse. When you see why the good son was lost, he was not lost in spite of his goodness. He was lost because of his goodness. He said, this is the very reason I will not go into my father's feast. This is the reason why I reject you, father. I've never disobeyed you. I've crossed all the T's, dot all the I's, and yet you did not kill me the calf. It is not his sins that keep him from his father. It is his goodness. He's so proud of the fact that he is good. It is not his sins that keep him from his father. It was his self-righteousness. You see, in this story, there are two distinct groups. And the reason why, we've, why I read verse 1, or why there's verse 1, is that Jesus was talking to two groups of people. Likewise, this morning, I'm speaking to two groups of people. Jesus, in his crowd that day, were the tax collectors and the sinners. And then you begin to understand who these two people are in the parable. Jesus is a brilliant storyteller. He was setting this thing up. He told the story of the lost, the, the, the lost coin, the lost sheep, then the lost son, right? And the sinners are the younger brothers. They, 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 have, they ran away. They live as they please. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, uh, the tax collectors and the Pharisees, excuse me, they are the older brothers. They were there listening in also to the story that Jesus was telling. 
And we have, we have before us the two main ways in which people try to change the world. It, we try to reform the world we are in, reform ourselves be, before God and to connect with God. We are either legalists or what some of us would call moral extremists or we are the liberals, nonconformists. Guess which category I belong to. <laughs> Those who know me would know that I belong to the latter. But in the crowd here, it's the same. The legalist says, I will not do what I want. I will comply with men. I will give in to the whims and fancy of the people. I will be good. I will work hard. The legalist. And the liberal says, I'll decide for myself what is right for me. I'll live the way I want to live. The liberals. Each side says, this is how the world will be a better place. Each side says, that, that's how you'll be happy. But Jesus says, you are both wrong and you are both lost. The elder brothers divide the world into two. The good people and the bad people. The legalists, you are good, you are, you are bad. The younger brothers do that as well. The open-minded people, they are in. The, and the bigots, the judgmental, they're out. I'm sure we had this conversation, whether it's amongst ourselves or in your family, all right, when we talk about different issues in society, you are so bigoted, you are so judgmental, all right, so you are out. <laughs> you're open-minded, you are in. Or the legalists, you are good, you are in. You are bad, you are out. And so most of us are in one of these two categories, myself included. But Jesus said neither of these things. He said, the humble are in, the proud, you're out. It's an issue of humility. It's an issue of whether we would humble ourselves and acknowledge that we need God. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is not religion or non-religion. It is not morality or immorality. We don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We eat from the tree of life. It's all about are we connected to His story? Are we connected to our Father? Do we know what He wants? What's important to Him? Amen? Because all our obedience, all our morality, if it's, a, if it's a way of getting God to give you what you really want, then it's getting in the way between you and God. Are you with me? It's because religious people obey God to get things. But true sons and daughters obey God to get God. To love Him, to delight Him not to get the approval of men or to get things from God, but simply because God said it, I want to live a life to delight Him and to love Him. See, the younger brother lostness and the older brother lostness are both bad. The younger brother lostness with its self-indulgence and addictions bring a lot of misery to the world. But likewise, the elder brother lostness, we can see it. Judgmental attitude, his anger, he's always angry. Sounds like some Christians we know. Always angry. That's also bad. That's also not what God wants. It comes down to our motive, right? If we love the Father, you obey Him. But why? The elder brother did not obey out of love. He obeys to get something. So the question I have, even for myself, is how can we completely change our motivation? To do something not as he says, to slave by duty, mechanically, joylessly. 
just out of, out of this sense of judgment and superiority, but out of love and gratitude. Because He loved me, He saved me. Out of the place of love, we serve and we care and we love. Amen. So He redefined God. He redefined sin. He also redefined salvation. Because we now see that Christianity cannot divide the world into good and bad people. The default mode of every human heart is self-justification. Being your own Savior and Lord. Try to control things, control people. But then how then can we be saved? In this story, Jesus said we need three things. Number one, we need the initiating love of the Father. Did you notice that the Father turns to both His sons? He was waiting to run towards the younger brother. He was he left the house to come out to talk to the offended older brother. It was his initiative. It was his love that reaches out to the younger son and kisses him before he repents. See, friends, we must notice this. The repentance did not trigger the kiss. The kiss facilitated the repentance. The father kissed us first before we repent. When I was in that upper room as a 15-year-old kid, I was arguing with, with my friend about Christianity. I wasn't open, ready to receive. I was actually in a debate. If you know me, that's my default. I enjoy a robust discussion. I come alive when I can have a different view. I, so I enjoy it. So I was debating with all my friends and they were tired. I haven't changed much. <laughs> But for some reason, I stopped and they, when, when they presented to me the gospel, I felt the kiss of God and I repented. It was the Father's initiating love. See, you will never, you will never go seek Him until He first seeks you out. And He sought me out. I knew it. If you, if you review your life story, you would know it too. He put you in the right place at the right time with the right people and then, you are, and then you're in the right space and there you are. Ta-da! He met you, and so you thought I found you. No, God found us. God found us. We all love Andre's story, don't we? How he crossed the road, and then a, a car just, for some reason, God positioned that car with the guy, to, <laughs> and he somehow walked into the car. Amen. <laughs> it is a way of God ambushing us with his kiss. Amen. Some of us, the kiss is a bit louder than, uh, than, uh, than the others, but God kissed us. The father also goes out to the older brother. Because if you remember, Jesus is telling the story to the Pharisees and that Jesus knew that the religious people are the ones that are going to kill him. Yet, he has the father. You must remember, Jesus was the author of that story. In this story, Jesus is trying to tell the Pharisees that the Father has left the house and the Father is also speaking to you, Pharisees, speaking to you, teachers of the law. The, he has the Father going out of the house to plead with them to come in. So Jesus was also giving them the invitation. So what was Jesus trying to tell us in this story? He's saying, tax collectors and, tax collectors and sinners, you are wrong. Pharisees, you are wrong. But both of you, are loved. Jesus wasn't angry at the Pharisees. Jesus loved. Of course, he was angry at what they represent, but Jesus loved the Pharisees. So, 
we need the initiating love of the Father. Number two, we need to learn how to repent from something besides sins. The younger brother comes back and he's got a lot of sins to repent of, right? And you and I understand that that's what we do. That's how we get right with God. And some of us, every night, will go through a list religiously. I've, I, I've spoken this and you know, we, we, we were taught growing up to, re, to repent for the sin of commission, what we know, and the sin of omission, what we forgot. All right, both. And so to get right with God, it's all about confession. And I believe that and that's important. But do you see how radical this parable is? The older brother is lost and yet he has got nothing on his list. He's like one of us who at night try to think through, what have I said wrongly? Nothing. I've been kind to everyone. What, what, what have I done wrong? Nothing. Wow. That day I've got nothing to repent from. And you feel proud. I'm now the perfect Christian. <laughs> I've always obeyed you, said the older brother. And the father did not contradict him. The father actually said, yeah. So how does a person who is lost and has no sins on his list get saved? The difference between a Christian and a moralist is this. The moralist also repent of what they have done wrong. But the Christian is someone who has also learned to repent for the reasons you did right. Do you get me? The Christian has learned to repent for the reasons, the motivation for living a moral life. They have realized that the reasons for the, for the right things they do are self-justification, the desire to control God, to control others, to earn His approval. And these are all things that we need to repent from. Because when we understand this, it changes everything in our lives. The, deal, the, the way we deal with criticism from people, the way we deal with our own failures, the, the way we see people who are different from us, the way we live, the way we, we relate to God, everything changes. We start to repent for our motivation for doing what we are doing. Amen? Last but not least, as I come to a close, is we need to be moved by what it costs to bring us home. Because from this story, at first glance, it didn't seem to cost much. And yet if you read carefully, the father said, everything I have is yours. And that's almost true. Why? Because the younger brother had spent his portion of the inheritance. And now everything the father has technically belonged to the older brother. The robe, the ring, the shoe, and even the fatted calf. The younger brother could only come to the family because of the enormous expense of the older brother. It's not free. See, salvation is not given for nothing. Someone has to pay the price. The older brother has to pay, and he was furious. He was upset. He said, your son doesn't deserve it. He was in the wrong, and you are spending my portion of the inheritance because he came home. That's not fair. So why did Jesus put in such a nasty older brother in the story? Because he's trying to show the Pharisees what they look like. But what would a true elder brother have done? What would a true elder brother have done? He would have seen the father's pain, anguish, and said, Father, I will go in search of my younger brother. And if he's broke and squandered all his inheritance, I'll bring him home. Even at my own expense, 
And that's what the true elder brother would have done. But this poor kid didn't have a good elder brother. But church, we do. We do. Jesus Christ told the story of a bad elder brother, so we long for the right one. In fact, someone said this story is the story of three sons. The younger son, the older son, and Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the true elder brother. We don't need one who will go to the next town to find us. We need someone who will come down from heaven to earth. We don't need an elder brother who will bring us back to the Father just at the cost of his wallet, but at the cost of his own life. See, because of the cross, Jesus was stripped naked so we could all be robed, be clothed with honor. On the cross, Jesus called, the only time he addressed his dad, my God, my God. He paid the debt for us, whatever we owe, so we can come home. Friends, this parable changed my perspective of the faith. And I pray this morning as we all stand that you encounter the Father afresh. But more than that, you would know the price that our elder brother Jesus Christ has paid to bring us home. Some of us here, under the sound of my voice, I believe need to know that your heavenly Father is different from your earthly dad. I don't think that's a perfect earthly dad. All of us have flawed parents. I'm a flawed father myself. I've misrepresented God so many times. Ask my kids, they will tell you that. I, I'm trying to do my best. And some of us have fathers that perhaps frame an experience that have caused us to relate to God the Father differently. And I pray this morning that from this parable, you will know how good your father is. He's a good, good father. A good, good dad. He's one who would run towards you. He's one who would expose himself, pull up his robe and, uh, and, and expose himself so, so you can be restored. He's the sort of father. And I pray that like me, you would encounter him afresh in a real way, not just in the head, not just because your leaders told you so or because you have read a book about it, but that you can experientially encounter God as your good father and be totally and radically transformed by the experience. And some of you here, I pray that you would know your true elder brother has paid a price to bring you home. Shall we sing this song, Dave?